Well, the story of the Tower of Babel is an incredible story. It is practical, it is powerful, it is compelling on many levels, but we're going to examine it from just two perspectives this morning. We're going to look at the story of Babel, and then we're going to look at the lesson of Babel. And the story is fairly straightforward. The story of Babel and the flow of the larger story of Genesis, it is here to answer the question, how did people get scattered all over the face of the earth? How did that happen? You remember back in Genesis 9-1, this is after the flood, Noah and his sons, they come down off the ark onto dry land once again, and it says, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Then last week we looked at Genesis chapter 10, which explains how this happened. It explains the expansion of human beings to every known corner of the earth at that time. So the three sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, Japheth, Shem goes east into what we would now refer to as the Middle East, the Shemites. The Japhethites, they go north into Europe and Asia. The Hamites go west and south into northern Africa. And so there is a degree of resolution in the story. God says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And then Noah and his sons, they accomplish the mission that God has given them. They did what Adam and Eve failed to do. Adam and Eve, they they spread out and they filled the earth in one sense, but they were so wicked, they were so sinful that God had to start over. He wiped them all out with the flood. And so here, there's a degree of resolution. They do what God tells them to do, but when you begin to look at who scattered across the earth, alarm bells start going off. So in Genesis chapter 10, we see that it's the Egyptians, and it's the Canaanites, and it's the Babylonians, and the Assyrians, and they're building cities like Sodom and Gomorrah. And even if you are just a little bit familiar with the rest of biblical history, you're thinking, wait a second, (laughs) something went wrong here. These are not people like Noah. These are not people who are righteous. Noah's described as a righteous man. He's described as a man who walks with God. These are not people like the descendants of Seth who called on the name of the Lord. These are rebellious, idolatrous, wicked people. So what happened here? Well, the events in Genesis chapter 11, they take place before chapter 10. So this is like the prequel to chapter 10. They, they happen before people spread out all over the earth. And they explain what happened. So here's the key question that the Tower of Babel is trying to answer. How did Noah's descendants spread out over the earth? How did it happen? Step one, the people decided not to spread out over the earth. <laughs> kind of ironic. How did they spread out over the whole earth? Well, first they decided they're not doing it. Verse three, they said to each other, come, let's make oven-fired bricks. They used brick for stone and asphalt for mortar. And they said, come, let's build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the sky. Let's make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered throughout the earth. So God says, listen, here's what I want you to do. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the whole earth, which implies you're going to have to spread out. You're all localized in one spot. I want you to spread out, fill the whole earth. And the people respond with, "Uh, no thanks, God. (laughs) Nope, we're not interested in that at all. They did not want to obey God's command. Now, why did they not want to obey God's command? There's two reasons that are laid out in the story. First, they wanted security. This is about security and it's about power. They said, come, let's build ourselves a city and a tower. Cities, especially in the ancient world, were about security. They usually had walls. They were built in places 
in the, in the topography, in the environment, in the landscape that were strategic, they were difficult to attack, and that was for safety. So if you spread out into small groups, you would be vulnerable. But if you, if you combine your, your personnel, your resources, your numbers, then you can be safe, you can be powerful. And you can see in the story that their building of the city is motivated by fear. You see the same thing in the life of Cain. You remember when Cain murders Abel in Genesis chapter 4 and he's banished, he's exiled. You, you remember his response, his rebuttal to God is, I'll be killed out there. It's dangerous out there. Don't send me away from civilization. And they have the same fear. They say, otherwise, we will be scattered throughout the earth. And as the reader... <laughs> You're thinking probably what God was thinking. Well, of course you're going to be scattered throughout the earth. That's the plan. That's what I've commanded you to do. That's what I've told you to do. Fill the earth. And so part of the problem here is that they don't trust that God is good. They think if they obey God, they are going to be harmed. But if they disobey God, they will be safe. So they disobeyed God because they wanted security. They also disobeyed God because they wanted significance. Verse 4. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the sky. Let's make a name for ourselves. This is where we get to step two. The people decided to build a tower. So how did the people spread out and fill the earth? Genesis chapter 10. First, they decided not to spread out. And second, instead, they decided to build a city and a tower. The type of tower that they were building almost certainly is what modern archaeologists call a ziggurat. One scholar on this matter said this, Mesopotamian religion claimed that their cities were of divine parentage. A symbol of this obsession with divinity among the Mesopotamians was the ziggurat that was erected as early as the third millennium BC. The ziggurat was a stepladder edifice made up of mud bricks whose bottom was square or rectangular. The precise meaning of the structure is unknown, though it is widely agreed that it formed a stairway between the gods and earth. I remember reading the story of the Tower of Babel as a kid, and I thought essentially the reason why God opposed the people is because their tower was getting so tall. I sort of had this image in my mind of it's, it's up in the clouds and they're about to reach God. And so God's got to shut them down. And that's not what's going on at all. We shouldn't visualize this as like a mile high tower that these ancient people figured out how to make. That's not what's happening. The tower they built would have looked something like this. This is a ziggurat. This is probably the most complete ziggurat we have. This is called the ziggurat of Ur. It's in northern Iraq. It was first excavated in the 1920s and 30s. In the 1980s, Saddam Hussein actually commissioned this sort of outer veneer. They made bricks to sort of recreate it like it would have looked originally. And the ziggurat of Ur was built, archaeologists believe, in 2100 B.C., which means it's over 4,000 years old. So this is not the Tower of Babel, but it's a similar time period, similar place, and very likely a similar structure. So when you imagine the Tower of Babel, don't imagine uh, like the Sears Tower or something like that. Imagine something like this. It is big, but it's not like a mile up into the clouds. And they built the tower not because they believed they could literally make it into the sky, They built it, they said, because they want to make a name for themselves. That's what's going on. So the tower would have been a symbol of ingenuity and accomplishment. The tower would have been a mark of technological advancement. It would have been a sign of connection with the supernatural. It very likely had religious significance. 
And so this was the people making a collective statement. We are powerful. We are united. We can accomplish great things. We have the favor of God or the gods. Now, the text doesn't tell us this explicitly, so we don't know. This is somewhat speculation, but it's possible that false pagan religion had already developed by this time. Most historians believe that the original Akkadian language, the word Babel, could be translated into something like gate of the gods. And so this is about significance. This is about, this is about respect. It's about reputation. It's about accomplishment. And the irony and tragedy is that all of this was done in rebellion to God's command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. You remember the city of Babylon, Genesis 10 tells us it was founded, it was built by a man named Nimrod. Remember Nimrod, we talked about him last week. And most scholars believe that Nimrod's name literally meant, it'd be translated, we shall rebel, which is kind of a funny name. (laughs) We shall rebel, built the city of Babylon, which is where everyone rebelled against God which would make sense why chapter 10 focuses in on Nimrod. So how does all of this prideful rebellion result in the people spreading out over the earth? It seems like it's headed in the opposite direction. Step three, God opposes the people. God opposes them. Verse five, then the Lord came down to look over the city and the tower that the humans were building. This whole section, it follows a very distinct literary pattern. It's called a chiasm. And this happens all over the place in the Bible. It's happened a bunch already in the book of Genesis. And normally, uh, I don't think it's necessary to point out in a sermon. It's fun to study, but it actually takes time to pick this apart and study it from a literary perspective. And typically you can get the main point without seeing the chiastic structure in the text. But here I think it actually helps paint the picture in a very significant way. And so we're going to take a second and I'm going to explain chiasm to all of you, okay? So a chiasm is when the second half of a piece of writing is a mirror image of the first half. So it can happen within a single sentence. It can happen in a paragraph. It can happen over the course of a whole narrative story. But in each case, the main feature is that each word or statement has a corresponding counterpart. The second half is a mirror image of the first half. I'm going to share an example with you. Very simple example would go something like this. She has all my love. My heart belongs to her. That's not in the Bible. It's actually a poem that I wrote for my wife, McKenna. I didn't actually write that. (laughs) That was the first thing that popped up on Google when I asked for an example of a chiasm. She has all my love. My heart belongs to her. Now that does accurately reflect my heart towards my beautiful bride. But if you look at this, it's one sentence and it has a, it's a mere image of itself. She corresponds to her, has corresponds to belongs to, and all my heart corresponds to my love. With my love or heart being the focal point of the sentence. And this is typically how it works. In a chiasm, whatever is the hinge point, the center point where the two mirror images meet, usually is the main point or emphasis of that literary structure. And that's exactly what we have in Genesis 11. The story hinges on verse 5. The second half is a mirror image of the first. So we're not going to go through all this, but I want to just show you a picture of it, like a chart. And you can see this very, very clearly laid out in the first nine verses. The whole earth had one language, the language of the whole earth. Each part has a mirror image 
in the second half with the the focal point being in verse 5, the Lord came down. And the reason this structure is so effective is because the whole story of the Tower of Babel is meant to show God's opposition to human pride. That's what's happening. And so the reason why this mere image structure is so powerful is because what you have is you have people rebelling against God in their pride, and then God intervenes, and in the second half, he reverses all of their efforts. Point by point, everything that they try to accomplish is reversed in the second half of the story. So the people find strength and unity in one language. God confuses their languages. The people settle down in a singular location for security. God scatters them over the whole earth. The people try to build a tower to the heavens. God has to come down out of heaven to see it. So again, my childish image of the Tower of Babel was that the, the human beings were like a threat to God. They were building this tower that was so tall, and he had to put a stop to it. That's not what's going on at all. This is meant to be satire. It's almost meant to be funny. It's, it's, it's like sarcastic. So God is not at all threatened by the activity of the people. What's happening is they're building this great tower, using all of their creativity, all of their resources, all of their ingenuity, and they're, they're going to make a great name for themselves and reach up into the sky, and it says, God had to come down just to see what was going on. It's like, have you, ever, have you ever watched ants working? Like in the summertime, if you're on a picnic or you're at a grill out or playing in the sand or whatever, if you watch ants, it's actually pretty fascinating. They're carrying like little bits of food that are like three times the size of their body. And, and they just, they're so coordinated and they're little dirt piles. They can, you know, it's, it's just fascinating to watch ants. But in order to actually observe them and see what they're doing, what do you have to do? You have to get way down on the ground. You have to get really close because they're so little. They're so tiny and their little houses and structures are so tiny. And that's the picture in verse five. That's what it's saying. God is not impressed by what they're building. He's not impressed by their rebellion. In his power and glory and majesty, he has to come down out of heaven off his throne just to see what's going on. That's the picture. The people want to make a great name for themselves. God gives them a humiliating name. Verse 9, Therefore it is called Babylon, for there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them throughout the earth. This is another thing that you miss if you don't read this in the Hebrew. I don't read Hebrew, but just reading some commentators. So Babel meant gate of the gods in the Akkadian language, but in Hebrew it sounds very much like the word Balal, which means confusion. And so they called their city the gate of the gods, and God called it Babylon. He renamed it Confusion. So how did Noah's descendants spread out over the earth? Step five, God intervened and accomplished his own plan in spite of human disobedience and pride. That's the story. The story is, well... The people didn't actually do it. (laughs) In spite of their rebellion, in spite of their obstinance, God steps in, God intervenes, and God carries out his plans. That's how we all got where we are today, is that God intervened at Babel. That's the story. Now, what lessons are there for us in the story? There's probably many, but there's just one that I want to focus on. The lesson of Babel is this. God opposes the proud. God opposes the proud. You see this all over the Bible. Proverbs 16, 18, pride comes before destruction and an arrogant spirit before a fall. 
Proverbs 3 says the same thing. James quotes the book of Proverbs roughly 800 years later. In James chapter 4, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The apostle Peter quotes the same verse, which means it's really important. <laughs> 1 Peter 5, 5. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And the Bible says this over and over and over. We could quote a dozen more verses where it commands, it warns, God warns against human pride. But it's not just in the principles, it's not just in the precepts and the commands of Scripture, it's in the whole story of Scripture. You see this over and over and over again. Even just in the Old Testament, you think about the Israelites wandering in the desert in the book of Exodus. And so many times they become proud, they harden their hearts, and God opposes them in the desert. He sends poisonous snakes. He sw- the earth swallows up a bunch of them. He, he opposes them in their pride. It happens later in the book of Judges. God opposes the people in their pride. You see it in the life of Saul. Saul himself, the first king of the nation of Israel, is a symbol of Israel's pride. They demanded a king, even though God said he was to be their king. And then Saul himself in his life is full of pride and he disobeys God and God opposes him. He strips the kingdom away from him and he gives it to someone who's humble and small in David. And then God blesses David. It says that David is a man after God's own heart. He's a humble man. He fears God, but then God makes him great. God blesses him and he gets a little bit too big for his britches. David becomes proud and God opposes David in his pride. You see it with all the kings of Israel and Judah to the point where eventually God sends the Babylonians. A thousand years after the events of Genesis chapter 11, and the wicked, pagan, idolatrous Babylonians captured the people of God, the Israelites, and they exiled them out of the promised land because of their rebellious pride. God is incredibly consistent on this issue. God always opposes you in your pride. Now, why is that? Why is this such a theme throughout the Bible? Why is God so consistent with opposing us in our pride? Well, it's because he loves you. That's why. This is what we see. This is one of the key insights from the Tower of Babel story is that God loves you so much that he will not let you get away with pride. He won't do it because he loves you too much. Now, to understand this connection, you have to understand what pride is exactly. I think this can get a little bit confused. Oftentimes we think of pride as like, hey, I'm proud of my kids because they played really hard in their soccer game today, or I'm proud of the fact that I graduated with a degree, or I'm, I'm proud of the fact that we finished this project at my house. That's not really what biblical pride is. It's not sinful to look at something you did and be thankful and excited and feel a sense of accomplishment. Pride, the type of pride that the Bible is talking about when it says God opposes the proud, is described in both the Old and New Testament. So both the Greek and the Hebrew word for pride, they literally mean high, like in terms of elevation, above, lifted up, over. That's what the word literally means. And so pride, it has first a vertical component. And the Bible is most concerned with our attitude, our disposition, our heart towards God. That would be pride towards God, vertical pride. Then there's also horizontal pride. So this is pride towards other people, our relationships with other people. We're going to focus primarily 
on the first type of pride, which is the deeper type of pride. It is the pride, uh, horizontal pride, it always flows out of vertical pride. So what is pride towards God? It means high, it means above, and it then means you put yourself above God. That's the idea. Pride towards God is when you put yourself above God, and this is what the people of Babel were literally, physically trying to do in the story. So the tower is emblematic of their pride. They're trying to put themselves above God. That's what they were doing. But there's a heart issue behind it. They're not literally, it's not as if God is way up there. And if you can just get high enough, then you can be above him. This is symbolic of a heart issue. The heart issue is that they were putting their plans above God's plans. God says, spread out. And they say, nope, we're going to stay right here. They're putting their values above God's values. God says, I want my image bearers to fill the whole earth so the whole earth can behold the glory and the goodness and the blessing of God. And they say, nope, our value is safety and power and significance. They're putting their priorities above God's. They're putting their reputation above God's reputation. So this is what pride does. This is the heart of pride. It says, my way is better than God's way. My values are more important than God's values. My priorities are better than God's priorities. My moral code is superior to God's commands. You see this so much in our culture today that the culture around us, they, they look at what God says is evil and they celebrate it as morally good. It's like the exact opposite. God says, here's what is evil. And people in our culture say, no, 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 no. That's not right. That's actually what's really, really good. (laughs) Proud heart is a heart that says, I'm not accountable to God. I don't have to answer to God. I am above God. That's pride. And so if we were to describe it in its simplest form, pride is simply disagreeing with God. That's what it is. It's disagreeing with God. With God. So, God, you want me to spread out and fill the whole earth? Nope, not doing that. I'm staying right here. (laughs) I'm not doing that. And it's important to notice this is not just belligerence. The story of the Tower of Babel, it's not just that they're being hard headed. Certainly they are, but they had good reasons. They had good reasons for disagreeing with God. They had good reasons for going against the plans of God. They said, God is not safe out there. We will be killed if we spread out. There's so much we can accomplish here together. We'll be safe and we'll be significant. And I think one thing that's so helpful about the Tower of Babel story is that it helps us understand where pride comes from. So have you ever thought about this? Like, why would somebody disagree with God? Now, it's complicated. Today in the world, there are many people who just don't believe God exists. So that complicates the issue. It's Of course, you could think about or conceive of a person who would disagree with God if they don't believe that God exists, but we're talking about 4,000 years ago. This is not that long after the events of the flood. This is not that long after the life of Noah himself. These are not people who are atheists. They know God exists. They know about his power. They have evidence of it right in front of them. And in one sense, so do we. You, know, you, you look out into the stars, you look into the universe, you look at the world that God has created. But I think in general, why would a person, any person, 
I don't care if you're Albert Einstein. I don't care if you're the smartest person who's ever lived. Why would someone disagree with God? With the being who is so powerful, who is so infinite in creativity, that he made the whole universe. That he invented life and brought it into existence. Why would anybody disagree with a being who is infinite in knowledge and power, who's eternal? Well, there's two reasons that we see in the story of the Tower of Babel. The first is fear. People disagree with God because they are scared. They are scared if I trust him, if I obey him, it's not going to go well. If I trust God, either he will forget about me, he'll abandon me, I'll be harmed because of my obedience, or I will miss out on something else that's really good. I'm going to get shortchanged if I obey God. There's, there's fear. I was thinking about this this week. I don't know if you've ever wondered, see people in your life, maybe you've experienced this personally, but there are all kinds of people who engage in overtly sinful behaviors that are obviously destructive. All kinds of people who they get addicted to drugs and alcohol or pornography or living an incredibly promiscuous lifestyle. And even in the world, even in our secular culture, the culture looks at that and says, you shouldn't do that. <laughs> you know, a little bit of drugs and alcohol is okay, but don't, don't just give yourself over to it because it will ruin your life. And so in many ways, on some of these extreme issues, the culture is saying the same thing that the Bible says. God says, be pure. God says, be self-controlled, be sober, be good stewards of your life. But so many people just say, no way, not doing that. I want my alcohol, I want my drugs, I want my sex, and they hold onto it, they cling to it, even though it's destroying them and it's destroying people around them. Why do people do that? Have you ever thought about this? Is it because they're just really bad people? They're just, they're just worse than the non-addicted people. They're just a worse type of person. That's not it. it. It's the same thing that is happening in you and it's happening in me. It is because there is an underlying fear. There's a fear. If I give up this pleasure, this comfort, this way to have security and control in my life, this activity, this relationship, then my life will be empty. I'll have no joy. I'll have no pleasure. I'll have no fulfillment at all. And so I'd rather take my little slice of enjoyment and all of the pain and destruction that goes with it. It's fear that there's not something better for them. And this happens in other areas as well that are not so obvious. It happens in just about every area of life. So, for example, God, you want me to forgive that person for hurting me? Nope. I'm not going to do that. That's not safe for me. Don't you know that they'll just hurt me again, God? God, you want me to give generously of my time and money for your kingdom in the local church? No way. That's not safe. I'm, I'm going to miss out on all these other good opportunities and experiences over here. God, you want me to reach out to my neighbors and coworkers with the intention of telling them about Christ? I can't do that. That's not safe. I'm going to miss out on opportunities in my career. People are going to make fun of my kids. I can't do that. I can't trust you there. God, you want me to be open and vulnerable and real and generous with my Christian friends at church? God, have you seen my Christian friends at church? <laughs> That's not safe. Those people are mean and they're immature. 
and they're selfish and I'll just waste my time and I'll just get hurt. And there's so many other examples of this where God commands us to do something and we say, God, you don't understand. That's not safe for me. I'll be harmed if I do that. And when you do that, even though you have good reasons for your disobedience, what you're saying is, God, in this situation, in this circumstance with these people, you are wrong. And I'm right. God, you're not seeing this correctly. I am. And so you trust yourself rather than him. And it's out of fear. Now, there's another reason people disagree with God in the Tower of Babel story. There's fear, and there's also a desire for fame. Fear and fame. This is the exact same formula that motivated Adam and Eve to disagree with God in the garden. Fear and fame. You remember in Genesis chapter 2, God creates Adam and Eve, and he gives them everything. he's, He's present. He's there with them walking in the garden. He gives them everything they need. He says, all of creation is very good, and it's all yours. Enjoy it. Explore it. Enjoy one another. Enjoy the gift of marriage. He gives them one command, one restriction that is designed for their blessing. He says, do not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because if you do, you will die. It's his only command, only restriction that he gives them for their blessing. And then Eve has this encounter with the serpent in Genesis 3, and he says, no, you will not certainly die. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God. And you see what Satan is saying. He's saying you can't trust God. God's trying to withhold something good from you. God's trying to shortchange you. Don't trust him. And in fact, guess what? There's There's a better alternative. You can be like God. You can be your own God. Now, this, when we talk about fame, oftentimes we think about Instagram followers, like notoriety. Everybody knows who you are. That's not what this type of fame is about. This is about autonomy, and it's about significance. You are your own boss. You are the master of your own fate. This is almost taken for granted as modern Americans, Western culture, individuality, with the Enlightenment, it's just baked into our psyche, but this is not the way that people thought about themselves for most of human history. The idea of being autonomous, significant, transcendent, in charge of your own life was relatively foreign in the ancient world. But this is the promise of Satan. He says, you can be your own God. You decide what's best for you. And God says, no way. Nope, I'm not going to allow that. Verse 5, the Lord came down to look over the city and the tower that the humans were building. And the Lord said, if they've begun to do this as one people, all having the same language, then nothing they plan will be impossible for them. Come, let's go down there and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So from there, the Lord scattered them throughout the earth and they stopped building the city. God opposes them in their pride. Now, why does God oppose them in their pride? I think there's a tendency to think when when somebody steps in and is an obstacle to our plans and our desires and the direction we're trying to go, we think that person's the bad guy. You know, who do they think they are? And so I think there's a tendency, you read this and you think, man, is God just a bully? Is he just mean? Is Is he just trying to flex on these people and just say, you're not powerful, I'm powerful. I mean, that's not what's going on at all. Why did God oppose the people in their pride? 
There's two reasons. First, so that they might experience his blessing. It's because he loves them. It's because he wants them to experience his blessing. Remember, Genesis chapter 9, verse 1, God blessed them and God commanded them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And so God's purpose, God's design was to fill the earth with his image bearers. And that as people went out into the world in obedience to God, they would experience his blessing. This is the way God set it up. And the blessing of God is what you were made for. This is what you and I were made for. This is where all joy and all meaning and all significance and real life is found. It is in the blessing of God. And ultimately, what the blessing of God is, is himself. It's relationship with him. You get to know God. You get to experience him personally. Now, it's more than that. So God gives us bodies, and he gives us minds, rational minds, and he gives us this incredible creation to explore and cultivate It's more than just relationship with him, but that's the essence of it. That's the heart of God's blessing. And that's where fulfillment and joy come from. And so he wants people to experience his blessing. But just like Adam and Eve in the garden, Noah's descendants couldn't experience relationship with God. They couldn't experience blessing from God apart from trusting him, apart from obeying him. Which makes sense. You can't stiff arm God and rebel against God and say, God, I don't actually want anything to do with you, but I want your blessing. It's like an oxymoron. (laughs) You you can't have both because he is the blessing. So just like in the garden, God intervened at the Tower of Babel. And he did for the people what they could not and would not do for themselves. And he did it so they would at least have a chance so that the species, human beings, would at least have a chance in the future of experiencing his blessing. He also did it, secondly, so that they would be aware of their weakness and their dependence on him. Because of God's love, because of his mercy, he wants you to sense, not just intellectually understand, but sense your need for him. He wants you to sense and feel, man, I am reliant, I am dependent on God. This is an act of his mercy and his kindness. One thing I've been thinking about, the story of the Tower of Babel, being made in God's image and likeness is a great gift. But because of sin, it's a little bit of a double-edged sword. So let me tell you what I mean by that. So because you are made in God's image and likeness, all of you guys are incredibly capable. Do you know that? You, you have a mind, and, and you can think and reason, and you, you're able to be creative, and you're able to be innovative and develop new things, and you're resilient, and, and you have so much capability to move through life in strength because God has made you in his image. Not, not all equally. We're not all equally talented. We don't all have the, strength, the same strengths or abilities or giftings, but you're all made in God's image, and you're all incredibly capable because of that, you're capable of love. You're capable of, of having a life that has meaning and purpose. And those things are because you are made in God's image. But that also means that you, because of sin and I, we will have a tendency toward, towards self-reliance. We move through life and we think, I got this. I can solve this problem. I've dealt with situations like this before. Even when things get really bad and we experience pain, 
We can reason and think, well, I can solve this problem. It'll get better. We have a tendency, I think, to think way more highly of ourselves than we ought to. We think we're way stronger and way smarter than we actually are. Another horrible side effect of this is that as a species, we have become really good at mitigating the natural consequences of sin. Have you ever noticed that? We, we, we can mitigate the consequences of sin while still holding on to the heart of sin. I saw a commercial just last week. It was a drug commercial, like a, like a prescription drug commercial. You see these all the time, and they're all the same. They have some silly name, some sciency name, and, and then everybody in the commercial is so happy. You know, there's butterflies and they're walking through a garden and the sun is shining and the music is super happy. But this particular drug commercial, all of the people in the commercial were gay men in romantic situations. And it was just so happy and so upbeat. And the the pharmaceutical that they were advertising was a drug that helps prevent the contraction of HIV. (laughs) I just thought, this is... This just epitomizes the human spirit that we rebel against God in our pride and God opposes us in our pride and then we figure out because God has made us creative and innovative and smart and intelligent we figure out ways to mitigate all of the natural consequences of sin and just cling to it and just say we're going to do what we want. God, our way is better than your way. (laughs) Our moral code, code is better than your moral code. Don't you know that, God? And the only reason we can even do that is because of the gifts that God has given us. Do you see the irony there? We couldn't come up with solutions to the problems of sin if God didn't put his image in us and give us a rational mind and creativity. Our pride is a great offense to him. And so God will oppose you in your pride because he longs for you to humble yourself so you can receive his grace and his blessing. And that blessing ultimately came in Jesus. Now we're going to fast forward really fast, okay? So right now we're, we're 4,000 years ago. We're going to fast forward 2,000 years. The Lord Jesus comes. He lives. He dies on the cross. He's resurrected for 40 days in resurrected glory. He teaches his disciples. He eats meals with them. And then in Acts, he ascends back into heaven. And in Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost... The Christians, the believers, the followers of Jesus, they receive the Holy Spirit that Jesus promised. And what happens is they start speaking in different languages. And so 4,000 years ago, God scattered people and confused their languages. And 2,000 years later, Jesus brought them together from every language. And they miraculously all understood each other. It's like the undoing of Babel. Look at this in Acts chapter 2. They start speaking in other languages, understanding other languages. And there's a lot of witnesses to this event. There's thousands of pilgrims in Jerusalem for Pentecost. And it says, they were astounded and amazed, saying, look, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Galileans were kind of like rednecks (laughs) in the nation of Israel. They, They were fishermen. They were not the people who would be multilingual. How is it that each of us can hear them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, those who live in Mesopotamia, in Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts, 
Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the magnificent acts of God in our own tongues. They were all astounded and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? And then the Apostle Peter, he stands up. He's the leader of the church, the spokesperson now that Jesus has ascended back into heaven, and he addresses the crowd, thousands of people. And he says, what this means is that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. See, these events took place very recently. This is approximately 50 days after Jesus is crucified. This has just taken place, very public. The city is buzzing with the events around Jesus. And so Peter, he explains who Jesus was. He explains to them that the blessing that God promised everyone all the way back in Genesis, it has arrived. It has ultimately come in Jesus. Jesus is the one who was promised in Genesis 3 to Eve. He is the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent, who would conquer Satan and sin and death. And the way he did it is through his own death. This is the gospel message. Jesus did what countless billions of people before him were unable to do. He lived a perfect, righteous, holy life. He wasn't proud towards God. Even though he himself is God, the second member of the Trinity, he humbled himself under the Father and he obeyed God perfectly. He lived a perfect, sinless life. And when Jesus went to the cross, he went there totally innocent so that he could take your guilt on himself. Jesus went to the cross to take your guilt and suffer and die for the death that you deserve to die because of your sin so that you could have his righteousness so that you could have his life forever with God in heaven. So just like the people of Babel could not do what they had to do to receive God's blessing, God intervened. God does the same thing for you in Christ. This is what's happening. And if that's true, that the only way we can be reconciled to God, the only way we can have his blessing, which is himself in relationship forever, if the only way we can have that is by Jesus taking our penalty for us on the cross, if it's true that no one can be forgiven, no one can be given eternal life without first acknowledging their guilt before God and second, putting their hope in his saving power, then that means we cannot know God We can't receive his blessing if we're proud. It's impossible. It is impossible to receive the gift of God's grace in Christ if your heart is proud. And so just one quick point of application. Clothe yourself in humility. Clothe yourself in humility. I love the way Peter puts it. 1 Peter 5, 5, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that you, he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your cares on him because he cares about you. Your default mode is pride, okay? <laughs> and so is mine. And so if we're going to put on humility first, we need to receive Christ. That's where it begins. We need to acknowledge our desperate need for salvation and that we can't do it for ourselves. God must do it for us. That's why he sent Jesus. But then, daily, you have to put humility on. And you have to put it on like an outfit. Like you go to your closet in the morning. This morning you went and you, or you opened up your dresser and you, I picked out this shirt. 
put it on, I buttoned it down. You have to put humility on, and you can't put it on with pride. You can't wear pride and humility at the same time. That would be like wearing a Packers and a Vikings jersey at the same time. Space-time continuum would implode if you were to do that. It doesn't work. You must put it on, which means humility requires a conscious decision. It doesn't happen on accident. How do you put on humility? First, you find out what God says about your situation in his word. God's word speaks to everything happening in your life right now, all of it, everything that matters. It doesn't tell you what your favorite ice cream flavor should be, but that's not going to be an area where you get tripped up more than likely. Everything that is important in your life, God's word speaks to it. Your finances, your possessions, your relationships, friendships, marriage, family, parenting, your time, priorities, your calendar, your effort, your energy, your talents, your values, your affections, what's most important to you, what you get most excited about. The Bible speaks to all of that, and you need to figure out what it says. What does it say? Secondly, now that's the easy part, frankly. There's all kind, you, could, you could, if you take 10 minutes a day, you can read the whole Bible in a year, and you can do that for the rest of your life, no big deal. Not that hard to figure out what God's Word says. Now, God's word is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. So you're never going to get over it. You're never going to get to the bottom and the depths of all that God's word has to offer. But you can figure out what God says about a situation. The second part is the hard part. Agree with God's word. You have to agree with it. This is the hard part. Agreeing with God is not easy. It is scary. It is often inherently risky, and that's why it requires faith. One good question to ask yourself is, what are you scared of? What do you fear in your life? And often that will be connected to areas of disobedience. What are you scared of? Agreeing with God's word requires you to trust him. It requires you to believe that he's good and he's working for your benefit. And then thirdly, find out what his word says, agree with it, and then obey it do it. Live it out. Read this. One commentator said this about the Tower of Babel story. He says, man's Babylonian heart may meld political philosophy and economic theory and technology and psychology and religion into a mighty self-elevating ziggurat, but it will never affect the autonomy or security we long for. We will never scale heaven we must leave off chasing after a name and find our identity in Christ. Let's pray.